Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences and Dr. Steve Wood. Joining us today is Sean Murphy from CSI's Crisis Communication Practice. Sean, how are you? Good morning, Steve. How are you today? I'm excellent. Sean, I brought you on because you know, you're the crisis communication guru. You and I have, have worked on some things, but you are the expert in this area. So I wanted to bring you on and talk to you about a few topics, but one of them that it really came up that made me think about it is you currently or you just recently wrote an article on cybersecurity breaches, right? And how to handle those? Yes, absolutely. Because this is the time of year, you know, with um, all the online shopping and online activity for travel and everything else. This is the time of year when people are most vulnerable. And like I said, I think that's why it was a good topic. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it, because as part of that article, you talked about how how other companies have done it. You know, you you talk a lot during presentations and you and I have had conversations about the right ways and the wrong ways to do it. But you had had a part as part of your article, you talked about how someone did it the right way and you laid out the different areas. So I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about what it was that led you to this topic. And then I want to talk more about what are these things that this company did right so that other companies can learn on how to approach those. Right. And we've worked on, you know, these type of cyber security crises uh, in the past. And so we just wanted to share our experiences because, you know, we worked on one of the very early ones, you know, about a decade ago before there was a playbook. And we worked with a financial institution, a bank that had um, misplaced the, uh, the personal, personally identifiable information of 2 million customers. And so they had to figure out the best response when this was something that was not you know, commonly occurring. And um, you know, they did do, I think there were six steps that they took that helped them navigate the crisis and also you know, make sure they had the right outcome for their, for their customers and ultimately maintain their reputation and probably, I would say, enhance their reputation because of the way they handled it. Excellent. So I just want to go, like I said, Sean, let's just go through the list and, and get your feedback and thoughts. And then I think I wanted to talk a little bit more about what we see from a litigation psychology perspective that we see companies do that maybe not necessarily are involved in a data security breach. But this, I think, is something that everyone can learn from, whether it is cybersecurity or if it's some other aspect of your company. I think that's right. And I think that uh, we can go through the list, but I think the most interesting thing is that, you know, I'd seen a study recently that said that a company's response really has to, especially in the cybersecurity situation, needs to connect emotionally with their customers because for them, it's a big violation, right? It's a situation where they feel that they don't have much control and, you know, some very sensitive information about them has been exposed to who knows, right? And so what's going to happen as a result of that? And so, you know, you're talking about something that's very technical on the one end, but how critical it is that companies who are uh, victims of cybersecurity incidents remember that they're dealing with people, right? That the, the solution may be technical, you know, identifying what happened and dealing with it may be technical, but the messaging has to be, has to relate to people and the effects that it's having on them as human beings, especially if you're a consumer company. But even if you're a B2B company, what effects is this having on your customers? So the first thing that you know, this company that did that as part of the playbook now is that top management led the crisis response. So they formed a crisis team. The CEO was the head of the team. 
COO ran the day-to-day operations and they had every department, uh, every vital department represented in that on that team. So whether it was legal, customer service, sales, whomever, whatever stakeholder groups are going to be impacted by what occurred were in that or part of that team and they were all tasked with specific duties to address the crisis. Sean, I want to ask, I want to stop and ask a question there is how often though does that happen where people have all those people in place or do you see where sometimes you think you have the right people and it's the wrong people or you don't have enough of the the other right people? What's kind of been your experience on that? Well, more and more it's because crises are becoming more common and people um, hear about them and how a company responds and can critique how a company, company responds. I think that more and more senior executives are involved. I think what's probably missing is the preparation up front, that you should already have a crisis team um, set up to go no matter what kind of crisis you encounter. And I think that's probably where companies, particularly mid-sized companies who figure they'll handle it if it occurs, where they may be lacking. All right. Second point, what was the second thing that they did? Well, they, they didn't wait to tell people. So they ran a preliminary investigation, so they had some facts, and then they disclosed those facts. Uh, they let people know exactly what occurred, what they knew in the moment, and what they were doing to figure out what was happening and how they could resolve the situation. So they were very transparent. They didn't wait to tell people. And I think that you see a lot of times today, companies waiting literally years to disclose that they had some sort of cyber breach, and then having to enter into these you know, uh, settlements and agreements uh, in part because they just didn't tell people. So imagine finding out a couple of years later that your data was breached and you know the solution to that is, well, you're now part of this massive settlement group, right? Yeah. Um, what about knowing in the moment and knowing that I need to you know, maybe protect my identity and protect my credit, do all sorts of things that I might be able to do if I had just known? And that's the whole thing. You know, like you said, I think from a consumer's perspective is, you know, like you said, already feeling violated that your stuff was breached, but then also feeling violated that it was essentially hid from you, right? It's almost like the company was saying, hey, let, let's let, let's hope we can handle this without anybody knowing. And then when it finally gets out, then it looks like either you're trying to cover it up or you were trying to pull one over on, on the consumer. Absolutely. Or they're underplaying it. You know, one of the most famous uh, least, least recent case studies is of a, a, a toy company that um, you know was a startup, and they had uh, these bears where you could record record conversations with your children, the parents, and you know these conversations were stored in the cloud, and there wasn't a lot of great security around that the company put in place, so anyone you know could listen to them, and so. You know, that's just kind of creepy. And they, their first response was not to tell people. Then the second response was to downplay it and say things like, well, change your password. And then ultimately, you know, that company, because it was a startup, not, you know, not, not a big company that had the resources, ultimately wound up closing down. So it really is critical for the people that you're dealing with that, that they know what's going on, that they know what you're doing to address the issue and that they get help with resources to, um, you know, take care of themselves in that situation. And I think that's another thing that we see as well, not only just in cybersecurity, but just in a lot of litigation that we do is where you might have some internal documents or you might have some early complaints, whether it be a product defect or that something where the company knew about it and then 
they let it go for a few times and then thought they could, like you said, fix it or, or that nobody would know. But then imagine from a juror's perspective, what it looks like when it says company knew about this problem for five years and didn't actually make a fix. And then it wasn't until someone was seriously injured that then they started looking at it. You could imagine how that plays out in front of a jury about the concept and a theme that we typically see from plaintiff's counsel is the what they knew and when they knew it. And if the company knew about it for a long time and, and didn't do anything, I think it really makes it difficult for on the defense perspective to try to address that because then, to your point, it looks like you were downplaying or you were trying to hide it. Absolutely. And that is that I think is the biggest mistake that companies make. Part of it might be that they think that these things are so commonplace that people become numb to it. Um, maybe if it's somebody else, but I think that if you're the individual who's been affected, you're not numb to it. Exactly. And I actually had one, you and I have had this conversation where I had my accountant for my taxes had a data breach. And then, you know, when I found out about it, like you said, you don't, you're not numb to it. And I had to do all of the credit reporting and all that type of stuff. But at the same time, it's hard from a consumer's perspective to rebuild your trust in that organization, even though they're doing things in steps, but it's a matter of how you feel violated and whether or not you feel confident in how they responded. Yes. I mean, you know, it's interesting because you have these smaller businesses and they all say, well, don't worry because the it's secure. And then you read, you know, how the federal government, who you think will have the most sophisticated cyber defenses is, you know, routinely breached. You know, is that really a great platform to stand on? Don't worry, it's secure. <laughs> exactly. All right. So number three, what was the third thing they did? They, they uh, designated a really effective spokesperson. So in this case, it was one, it was the person who headed the division where the the consumers were affected and he was a he was a customer himself so he knew how all of his customers would feel because his information was potentially out there just like theirs now i also have to say that he admitted look i'm a finance person i'm not accustomed to media interviews or talking with people about these kinds of things and so he was uh, very accepting of spokesperson training and says to this day that it was you know, critical for him to be able to kind of look outward and put himself in the shoes of his customer and talk about the situation in terms that really resonated with them. And he just did an excellent job of connecting with people, talking internally with his team and the employees in, in, in that business unit, uh, helping pull everyone together and figure out the best path forward, but also uh, acting, making sure that everyone was acting on the in the best interest of the customers, and then the way that he was able to participate, he made himself available, right, for uh, forums with the employees, for media interviews. He was very accessible, so providing updates as they learn things. Um, he's somebody who did it absolutely right. And if you kind of met him on the first round, you would think, well, he might not be the best spokesperson, but. No, he, he made the commitment to become that, and it took him about a day to learn some of the great techniques for being a spokesperson, and uh, he embraced them, and uh, they became part of his you know, management training uh, from that day forward. He was a much more effective communicator, so it had, a, it had a benefit beyond the crisis for him and for everyone who worked with him. And I think one of the things I've heard you talk about before is that 
talk about being a, a credible, having a credible spokesperson. I think there needs to be some thought behind that, as you would argue that they'll put the CEO up there because the CEO is the most knowledgeable, but maybe the CEO isn't the most personable individual. So I think, can you speak to that a little bit about having some thought behind it, that just because someone is in a CEO position doesn't, and they might not be personal, doesn't make them the best spokesperson where you might have someone who's maybe not as knowledgeable on a certain topic, but has the ability to be credible and to show empathy and that they're easier to get into a position where you can train them and have them be the spokesperson versus necessarily the CEO. Yeah, I mean, there's this knee-jerk reaction from people that says that the CEO needs to be the spokesperson in a crisis. Well, I mean, I ultimately, yes, I think that's probably true, but you want your CEO associated with solutions and not problems. So you want them to be the person who speaks when you're prepared to talk about what occurred, what you're doing, and how you're fixing things. Uh, you want really levels of spokespeople. You need some people who can deal with the media on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Who have the ability to talk with them in terms of giving them background information and other things so that they have what they need to, to complete a story versus always being the public face, right? And then you want, in terms of your executives, you want a bench of people who can speak to the topic, who maybe it's their area of expertise, like with this particular uh, situation that we worked on, the CEO of the bank himself, while he was in charge of the situation, allowed the CEO of the business unit to handle it because it was his business unit. He knew the most about the business and the customers and the impacts. And so that's what you should expect of your other senior officers that they have this ability. So yeah, ultimately you do want your CEO to stand up for your organization and speak for it. But ideally that's when solutions are at hand or when they can, when it's necessary for them to express the commitment of the full organization. But you want other people who are prepared as well so that who have either expertise in terms of the area of the business that's been impacted and our senior executives over that, or are good at dealing with media on a day-to-day -day basis and can help them kind of fill out their stories and get accurate information and do all that legwork, um, that's important too. I think that's a good point to, to bring up too, just from a litigation generally perspective. We see the same thing with attorneys that sometimes attorneys don't do as good a job in building rapport with jurors or they're really good at other areas of the case but they might not be the best at building rapport. They might not have the, the most likable personality or, or be as approachable and that sometimes you need someone else in certain aspects of the case, whether it be talking about damages or whether it be talking about other more sensitive topics of the case that you might need someone who has that more personable approach, who has that ability to build rapport. So like I said, they might not be the most senior attorney, but they have that skill set to be able to address jurors in a way that maybe others can't. So it's about planning and understanding how your team and strengths around you can help build the message as well. Absolutely. Number four, Sean, what was the fourth thing? Well, they, they did offer a solution, even though it was very costly to them. And this was early on. Remember, there was no precedent yet, really. And um, they offered their all of their all 2 million customers free credit monitoring for at least three months. And this was when they weren't even sure if the data had been breached. So it was just on the possibility of having the data breached that they decided that they were gonna protect their customers. Now, of course, the benefit of, of credit monitoring is 
you can see if someone's accessing your information to take out, you know, new loans or credit cards or buy, you know, buy a car or whatever they might do with your information. And uh, they wanted to make sure this is a bank. They wanted to make sure they protected their customers. And so they did. And even when they discovered that the data was not breached, they still let the customers keep the free um, credit rate, credit monitoring, you know, in part because of what they had been through in terms of having to be concerned that it might have been breached. So, you know, they acted form, foremost with the, with, the, with the best interest of their customers in mind. And it wasn't about dollars and cents for them. It was about protecting the customer's financial security. And as a result, they were able to protect their own reputation. They acted. So, you know, in a cybersecurity situation, I mean, can you imagine a situation where you have less control? So how do you put control back in, because that's the violation, right? That's the emotional tear. How do you put control back in the hands of the consumer? Well, in this case, it was, well, you'll be able to see if somebody's actively using this data right now. And they were willing to extend the credit uh, monitoring if indeed the data had been breached, but it hadn't. So nonetheless, they kept it in place. I think that's wise. I mean, how many, t- how many times have we all heard about or the whole idea of profits over safety or the fact that companies are essentially trying to protect their bottom line and that it's the consumer, essentially they're protecting their bottom line on the backs of the consumers. Like you said, talk about feeling violated where you feel like the big bad corporation doesn't care about you, the little guy, and that they're more worried about protecting their money than they are about protecting you. So I think it comes as a, a fresh solution and something that people can get behind when a company actually does that, even though it could work against their best interests. And I mean, I think from the credibility literature, what better way to build credibility than when you're doing something that's against essentially your best interest and it helps individuals see that you actually care. Absolutely. I think that that is is what makes a huge difference. You know, are you uh, more uh, concerned about your own bottom line or, or are you going to show some concern about, the impact on the people that you uh, count on, you know, as the livelihood for your business. Don't see that enough. And I can tell you in any sort of litigation, if you get some sort of email or something where someone mentions the, let's just pay the litigation costs rather than fixing the problem. There's few things probably that are as, as damning as that when it comes to litigation. All right, Sean, what was number five that they did? Well, they never played the blame game. And that's really critical. You know, in their, in this case, it was not the bank itself that had caused the problem. It was one of their vendors. But never did you hear that it was the vendor's fault or them pointing fingers and trying to deflect responsibility. Their view was, well, it's our vendor. And so, and this is our process and this is how we chose to do business. So it's our responsibility. And so you never heard that it's somebody else's fault. And I think that's reassuring, particularly when you're dealing with any kind of customer, whether it's a B2B customer or the consumer, that there's somebody who's going to stand up and say, we are the ones who are going to handle this, right? Makes a huge difference. And so they maintained their relationship with the vendor because it was necessary that they continue to work closely together to figure out what happened and resolve the issue. But to do that in the back channel, right? Not be dragging it all into the public they already took responsibility. So the public knew that there was, the bank was going to be responsible. So what was critical though to them was that they and their vendor actually resolved the issue. And that was less likely to happen 
if it was going to turn into some big public spat between them. So they avoided that. Yeah, I think, like you said, no, in a situation like that, no one wants to see finger pointing. And I think it's, it, it doesn't, it does more harm than good. Then it's one of those situations, at least from my perspective, that I tend to look at in my own personal life is let's not worry about who's at fault. I mean, we can't go back and unring a bell that's already occurred. Let's figure out about how to move forward rather than spend a bunch of time saying, well, it wasn't my fault, it was your fault. And then, like you said, finger pointing at other individuals to try to get yourself out of a sticky situation. But from the outsider's perspective, it just makes things worse, right? Yeah, because it's all about focusing on the problem instead of on solutions. And it doesn't help anybody. And so, you know, for for people who are uh, have been impacted by this kind of, this level of violation, it's really critical to know that somebody's in charge of getting it resolved. And they're not just going to, you know, try to play it off or deflect it, that they're actually doing things to fix it. And so it's the response, who is the responsible party here? You know, and there's a difference between accepting blame and accepting responsibility, right? When you, when you accept responsibility, you're saying that we will take actions to fix this and make sure it never happens again. And that's what's really critical in a crisis. That's what people want to know. And they want to know the specific things that you're doing about it. You know, that's one of the key tenets of any kind of crisis response, but particularly in a cyber situation when you're dealing with, with you know, people's privacy. All right, last number six, Sean, what was, what was it that they did? Well, the last thing they did was they actually changed the way that they handled their customer data. So, and they told people that. So they were never vulnerable to that kind of uh, data breach again. And, um, you know, already before the crisis occurred, they had begun to explore, you know, modernizing their processes. And uh, this, they used the crisis as an impetus to get that done. So, you know, crises, good things can come from crises when you learn a lesson or when you have um, kind of bring something to the forefront that you thought, you know, maybe you could take some more time to deal with. They put resources to it and they fixed the, fixed the problem so it would never occur again. And they, they told their customers exactly how and what they, did, what they did with regard to that. I think that's interesting too, because we see in a lot of other cases as well, where you have these kind of subsequent remedial measures where a problem exists and then, and then they fix it. But a lot of times jurors will hold it against the company for the problem even existing in the first place. But I think to your point of really what you've been talking about the whole time during this podcast is that how you handle those, how you handle those responses can change the perceptions about those subsequent remedial measures about how people say, okay, well, everyone learns from mistakes that have happened. We're not going to hammer them for this mistake because of how they handled it versus, hey, we made the fix. Everything's better now. Now you're holding it against us because we made a mistake. And that's what we tend to see. But I think to your point, you're saying is people will probably be a little bit more receptive to those changes and appreciative of those changes versus punishing you for those changes if you've handled it these ways. Yes. And, you know, the thing is with a crisis, it's about transparency and it's about having your facts and it's about being responsive and it's about being credible when you're talking to people because you're not talking to them from the point of view of the organization, but the point of view of the impact of the crisis on them and their lives. Yeah, Sean, I'm going to, throw you one and one more question because I as more I talk to you the more I, I get to thinking but do you have any kind of thoughts as far as internal communications and how things should be handled is that because we all know that I always talk about how 
what is this document? What is this email going to look like when it gets put up in front of a jury? What is this document going to look like if you have to get presented with it at a deposition? And going to your point about kind of crisis communications, what would this look like if it got leaked to the press? Do you have any thoughts about how things should be handled as far as communications wise internally to make sure that if, if things were to get leaked, that there isn't anything that's that's harmful or that your message is clear and that it doesn't look like there's any back channel conversations that are happening where people are trying to hide the ball of sorts where someone who could try to take this and look like it was something nefarious and run with it. Right. Well, I think, first of all, you want to protect your crisis response as best you can. Uh, and so you, you want to make sure that your as communications team is, is part of um, the privilege team. Right, so we often work through the attorneys to achieve this, and it's an important thing to do because you have to be able to um, be able to uh, figure out different potential responses, right? Uh, and really, what matters most to your stakeholders is where you wind up. But there has to be room for you know clear conversations in the background about what has occurred and what what needs to be done. You know, people should be very cautious about the things that um, they record because, as you say, ultimately can all wind up in um, public domain. And so you need to think about that when you're writing a text or writing a memo. And it helps to have that point of view as we're trying to resolve this and we're trying to act in the best interest of our stakeholders. That's a good filter to use when you're trying to write, when you're writing things down, right? But otherwise, and in terms of you know, internal communications, there's the crisis team and the, you know, clarity in which they have to communicate with each other. Then there's communicating with your organization, because remember, people have platforms nowadays with, so through social media, and if they're not restricted from posting about the company, they may be providing accidentally or on purpose misinformation about the company and its crisis response. You know, you might have people who are do customer service work saying, well, this happens all the time here or something like that, right? And so it's important for companies to have policies, social media policies as part of their crisis planning for what their employees can or cannot say about the company in those platforms. It's a critical thing because, and it's a fair thing because you know it's part of your employment um, policies, right? You need, employees need to be very clear about what those policies are and the company needs to make them clear. I think the, another part of it is how much advanced planning do you do? And that's a critical thing. If you've done it, particularly in cybersecurity, I mean, think about how cybersecurity has changed just in recent years. I mean, it may be that whoever breached you may shut down your, your traditional methods of communicating with your own people. So what's your alternate method of connecting with people. You know, that should be part of your physical crisis response plan, but also it's critical to the communications planning because what if you can't get your messages out? Is there an alternate route that you plan? So what responsible companies do and what makes them better at crises is that they plan ahead. They do some advanced scenario planning. Um, they figure out what are the likely scenarios here, given us who we are, how we operate, our business, our industry. Then they uh, kind of articulate that crisis, what might occur, and prepare some preliminary communication materials, right? 
in case it happens and you're not scrambling to figure out how to respond, you've got the basis of a response. Then they conduct simulations, particularly with cybersecurity. It's critical because of what might happen in terms of physical infrastructure, that you be prepared. And also that you, you know, have access to operational details that will be critical to things like, as you're suggesting, future lit litigation. It's like, what are the regulations and the requirements in each of the jurisdictions where your company operates? You know, are there obligations you have to um, communicate in terms of a cyber security situation? So, you know, the, the internal communications, including among the crisis team, are much sharper if it's something that you've done before, right? And you don't want the crisis to be the first time that you're doing it. So preparation, planning, simulation, particularly in cybersecurity is absolutely critical these days because of the impact of a breach potentially on even your ability to communicate. Yeah, I think those are all, those are all great points, uh, Sean. I think we, we talk on the podcast all the time too, preparation, preparation, preparation. And I think your, your point's well taken because I think there's probably not as much focus on it in that people think this won't happen to me or it only happens to large companies. So the preparation's not there, or the thought's not there. But I think you have hit the nail on the head as far as getting other people to think, whether it's a small or a medium company, that these things could happen to you as well. And that you're, it's not the big companies that are necessarily everyone's going after, right? That's right. It's the companies that are most vulnerable. And so they're the ones who maybe don't have the technical staff or the resources to, you know, have the highest end of security systems. And they're the ones that are most vulnerable. And also, you know, you saw um, there were some studies released earlier this year about how even small to mid-sized companies, because they're part of larger supply chains, are so much more vulnerable and they can impact they can impact the much larger companies if they're somehow taken out, right? Yeah. So we saw that this research at the World Economic Forum that was released at, that talked about how critically important it is for small and mid-sized companies to recognize their vulnerabilities and make similar kinds of preparations in terms of um, planning to respond to, a cyber, to cybersecurity scenarios. Well, that's excellent, Sean. I, I appreciate it. I always appreciate you coming on and talking more. I always learn so much from you about things I necessarily not even thinking about, but obviously are very pertinent to our job, uh, litigation, psychology, and just general. So I, I appreciate you coming on and talking about that. My pleasure as always, Steve. Thank you for um, having me on. And uh, I think this is all important information for companies to think about. You know, when you when you think about cybersecurity, you as a company may feel like it's some may, may feel too big to you, you know, but um, if you do the right amount of planning and preparation, you can really get your hands around it, your arms around it. Yeah. And let's hope some companies don't have to have dealing with any communications or crises, but I would, I would recommend small, medium and large companies reach out to Sean to get the plan moving so that you don't have to worry about it, as he said, after the fact. So once again, thanks, Sean. This has been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences.